Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I have the privilege of speaking with independent curator Anne Schaefer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for um, for hopping on. And uh, one of the rare instances where I've already connected with a person in real life and then I bring them onto the podcast to talk shop. So, yeah, this is going to be great. Um, I think a, I think a pre-talk meeting is, is, is good. It's important to know who you're getting. Oh, I like to I like to BS. I like to just like go through it and say, let me listen to other interviews that aren't as good as mine and get an <laughs> idea of like, oh, OK, this person did really well on there. Now I just need to like raise myself up. Nice. <laughs> so I want to start off for those who are undipped and unfamiliar with you. Could you introduce yourself? Because I'm, I'm going to go brief, um, but introduce yourself and give us those vital stats. Sure. My name is Anne Schaefer. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm an independent curator specializing in works on paper, prints, drawings, and photographs with a special and deep abiding love for contemporary prints and printmaking. I am organizing a print fair coming to Baltimore at the end of April 2022, uh, five short weeks away, and I also host a podcast called Plate Mark, which is about prints and printmaking. Well, thank you. Thank you for that that intro. It was a very, very professional, crisp intro. Appreciate that. I try. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read in doing some of the research um, about um, your the leading expert on intaglio printmaking. So what is that? And, and yeah, tell me more about this. Okay. Have you ever heard that old 19th century phrase, why don't you come up and see my etchings? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a real thing. So intaglio is the Italian word for to incise. So intaglio printmaking is a term that covers any kind of uh, printmaking where you have a copper plate, metal, could be zinc, and you're carving a line into it or getting some pattern down into the plate, and then you roll it with ink and it sits down in, and then it gets printed. So it's this transfer process. You have to work backwards, and you know it's a mirror reflection when you pull it from the plate. Yeah. And uh, it covers etching, engraving, dry point, aqua tint, and a bunch of other stuff. That's really interesting. So is that, um, how, how far does that go back in terms of, because I've, I've never heard of it before, um, and which is on me more than anything else. So how far does it go back? Because it seems like it's uh, something with a deep, rich history. It is. It does have a deep, rich history. Funny you should say that, because on Plate Mark, I'm in the middle of Series 2, and we're doing a history of just that thing, um, covering other kinds of printmaking also. But Intaglio goes back pretty much the farthest, although probably would cut a little farther, but it derives from the goldsmith's trade where they would carve designs into armor or, you know, beautiful um, chalices for the church or what have you. And it be begins to flourish after the invention of the printing press in the middle of the 1400s, around 1455 or so. So once they figure out that they can print suddenly people start experimenting with ways to get images onto paper and Italio engraving at first, which I can explain if you'd like, Please. Um, starts starts up. And uh, probably the most well-known maker of early engravings is Albrecht Durer. You've probably seen a Durer, you just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I also read that... Um, you know, art historian, curator, you know, that's that's in there. So I want to get, um, what's your take on, um, as an art historian, as a curator, 
this is going to sound so broad and ridiculous, but what is art? And um, how, how do you mu- new museums maybe impact the way that we look at art? Yeah, that's a big one, dude. <laughs> no, I, I know, I know. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where I've heard various responses to it, but I think what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at is a lot of times in my experience, like for a long time, I didn't feel like I had enough class to go to a gallery or enough class for art. So that's what I'm kind of keying in on. Okay. Uh, yeah. So part of my underlying and long-term uh, goal is to make art less scary. So yeah. you've come to the right place. <laughs> now, I don't know if I have a good answer for you. What is art? But I think if I can try and get it into a, a nugget, uh, it's usually has to do with intention sure. to use creativity in some way to say something. And it could be purely representational. It could be a picture of a you know face of flowers. It could be expression of emotion or anger or you know love or need or whatever. And it could also take the form of um, what they call formalism, where you're playing with the idea of what are shapes and colors and how do they interact. So that's kind of the basic three things that fall into the pot of art for me. But as I, as you sent me, think helpfully sent me the questions ahead of time, Rob, I found two famous people from way back when who said two things that I thought were really great. One is from Thomas Merton. I have to look him up. So don't say anything, you know, (laughs) but he said art enables us to find ourselves and lose ourselves at the same time. Mm. So sort of a way to take you outside of your own reality to, to take you sometimes in through beauty or in through emotion, depending on what you're looking at. And the other was from John Sibelius, who was a, I do know who was a composer. (laughs) Uh, And he said, art is the signature of civilizations. Mm. So to, the reason I loved art history when I was starting out was I believe in the importance of knowing art history, but I also fall asleep when I start reading about wars and political campaigns. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, there's got to be another way. You know, you can trace our history through culture and art. And if you look back at, you know, what we know about civilizations like, you know, the, the Vikings or whatever, we, all, we only know it because of the art, basically the architecture. Sure. And that's the thing that lasts through civilizations when they, you know, they die off. So in in terms of the the impact or the role that museums play in it, like, is it like solely a place to kind of appreciate art, experience art, things of that nature? Or w- what is your, your take on that? Because, uh, you know, you, you have a background in that area or what have you, without going, you know, deep into anything, but you have a background in that area. Um, so I want to kind of get that take as well, because, you know, a lot of people will avoid museums and a lot of people will go to museum as a, as a date thing. I go to museums for dates because I look to look like I'm classy. I like to put on a tiny glasses, big scarf. And uh, that's what I do at museums. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's, I'm going to step in it deep here, Rob. Thanks so much. Um, so museums are, are facing a moment. They're having a moment. Mm -hmm. There, there are lots of really smart people out there questioning everything that museums do. And I completely agree with them. It's time for the reckoning, as it were. Um, There's a lot of calls for decolonizing the collections, repatriating the human bones that are part of Native American collections, and many other things. Um, 
there's a lot of social justice, gender equity, pay equity stuff going on with the staffs of museums. And then there's this really wonderfully smart woman named Latanya Autry who has a campaign going that the tagline of which is new museums are not neutral. That, that even though you go in there and you see objects, the museum does in fact have a point of view. Sure. There's no way around that. So, so I've been in, excuse me, I've been in uh, museums for, you know, almost 30 years. And I was a curator at the Baltimore Museum of Art in prints, drawings, and photographs for 12 years and left there in 2017. And this kind of thing is new kind of thinking. I mean, when I started, it was, you know, it's like a library. You go in and there are these wonderful artifacts and the curators are trying to tell a story about something sure. and you keep going but you know the 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 deep doo-doo it's in now it's like how do you how do you how do you reconcile all that stuff how do you deal with the the story of the art you know the history of art when it's been written by men and it only features white men like there's there's a big problem there and so you know over the years there's been I mean, way back in 1970-something, Linda Nochlin wrote this article about why are there no great women artists, which was groundbreaking. Right. And her thesis wasn't that there aren't any. It was that the systems aren't in place for them to have been involved in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't allowed in the academies. They weren't allowed to go to school. They weren't, you know, so that it's always, there's this struggle to have everything out there and be seen. But the internet has completely diluted the power of that structure. Yeah. So now everything, you know, you, uh, there's no straight line up to the top of the pile of who's the biggest artist at the moment. Like there's just not, <laughs> which is great, but hard to wrangle also. No. And, and, and thank you for, for sharing that, that take. Cause it's, um, it's a fair one and it's one that, I don't know if people are really talking about in terms of being like out there and having a conversation around it and having someone with the background. Um, and you said like, you know, almost 30 years ago, have you, it's just like, Oh no, this is a qualified person to kind of speak on this. That is an art historian that has a background curatorial experience and is also an, an artist. You're, you're a writer, you're, you're a podcaster. So you have that unique perspective. And I, I'll add on there. I think a lot of these systems, as we look at, um, how we navigate living in the world, being a person, being people within the world. I I don't think there's a mistake that we're having this mass exodus of people leaving the workforce. At the same time, I think people are becoming more awakened. It's like, you know, we were gone for two and a half years due to this pandemic from the way that we were doing things. And people have woken up and it's like, let's revise this. Why is this right? Why is this the way that we've gone about things? And, it's like, oh snap! They see us. You know, we got to change things, and um, and and it's almost this thing where, I, and this is not necessarily related, but it ties into the, the the point you were making about why are there no great female artists or have you? It's like, why are there no black guys in tech? Like, you're not looking for them. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, why are Dundies? They're around. I assure you they're around. You're just not making the commitment to find them or to pay them what they're worth and all of these these different things. So I just wanted to, to have that there. Um, yeah, I mean, in the museum field, absolutely. The whole enterprise was started as a colonizing thing where some great collector man boy <laughs> was trying to, you know, 
collect as many things to help people who don't get to those far-flung places to learn about other civilizations and peoples. It's always been based on volunteerism for the workforce. It's almost always been volunteer wives of those sorts of guys who were doing the collecting. And at the, it's always been incredibly low paying. They, mm -hmm. They're the most overqualified, underpaid people on the planet. It's incredible. There's, I mean, well, I could go on forever. And, and, I, and I think it is one of those things where you're working, the expectation is, oh, you'll work for peanuts off the love of, you're an art person, you, you, went, to, you went to school for this, you have an interest in it, and it's it almost diminishes what one's qualifications are. And it's like, you know this stuff is transferable, right? You're not going to do this at like an office, right? And that's the thing that's that's really odd because, um, you know, once upon a time, I wanted to go into that field. I wanted to go into just, you know, illustration mostly. But I, you know, have an interest in art and my way of getting to that is doing this podcast. And I remember my parents telling me, don't take a job in art. You're not going to make any money. <laughs> and so that's why I did business. Um so, yeah, I mean, I'll say it. I have a husband who has a, a salary that isn't able to support us, and I'm very privileged to be, have been able to work in a museum as long as I did. I loved it. I never wanted to do anything else, and I was lucky enough to get to do that. Absolutely. So as a creator, as I was talk, touching on before, and curator, what do you want to offer the community? And secondly, this is, this is for Inside Dope. I'm stealing again. Uh, what traits do the best curator share, in your opinion? Oh, that's another deep one. I, well, I'm, I'm trying to steal. I've been I've been positioning myself as a cultural curator, so I want to be able to really be valid and just have that. You know how you know how you look at the back of a book jacket and it says these comments. I could just have my podcast like these comments with me making this pose <laughs> with a turtleneck on. It'd be great. Right. Yeah. I there there are a couple of different kinds of curators out there in the world, um, and there's probably more. But the the basic kind are the the kind that want to take deep dives into deep research on objects or groups of objects and write about it and publish sure. and put up exhibitions that you know say, hey, I've discovered this great thing. And then there's curators like me who are more interested in connecting with people. Right. So there's there's a in my brain there's like the ivory tower closed door study person in the study curator and then there's the person who's so let me explain. So at Baltimore I was the curator of prints who hosted classes and visitors. So if you had called me and said, hey, Ms. Schaefer, or whatever you wanted to address me as, I'm interested in looking at all those fabulous Rembrandt prints you guys have. And I would say, sure, when do you want to come in? And I would sit you down with all of the boxes of Rembrandt prints and you would go through them. Yeah. So I always considered it the study room in the print department to be the third front door. You know, there's the door at the top of the big stairs on the marble facade, scary building. And then there's the one that says, you know, Black Lives Matter, welcome to the building, which is kind of intimidating because it, you can't see into the glass now with sure. that, you know, scrim on it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I felt like I felt a real responsibility to make that first encounter with art 
for all of those students that came up from Micah or Hopkins or even some high schools to make that as positive an experience as possible and to dispel this idea of the scary curator in the ivory tower, which of which, of course, there are many. Um, but that was that's always been my bottom line. I, I admire that one. I like that one. That's, I, I was like, oh, she, she's not a scary curator. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, 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 the people component, the connecting dots component, and uh, um, being able to, no, here, here, this is how you can get an entry point to this and make it inviting. It's like, I love this. You should too. Let me help you do this journey. That's, that's what I admire. And that's why I'm glad we were able to connect and talk. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was um, it was a uh, a privilege to be able to do that kind of connecting and and I still I mean I I miss I miss the the students a lot and so it's really wonderful when I have a chance to you know head over to Micah and do some critiques with the students or you know sometimes I do <clears throat> excuse me Zoom uh, studio visits with people you know it's just like I love the creative brain of artists and I love to see how they think and, and to see how I can help them translate that for other people who might feel like they're not getting through or in or, or giving them permission to see whatever they need to see or want to see. Yeah. You know? So I want to talk about the, um, the, the print fair a bit. Um, just so, so I read that you're, you're bringing the Baltimore Contemporary Print Fair back to Baltimore in, in April, right? And you, you touched on that a little bit earlier. And it's after five years of kind of being, you know, away, dormant, and all that good stuff. So ultimately, in, in going to this, which I will be pulling up, um, what, what, are your, what are your hopes for the fair um, in, in this one, like short term? And what are your hopes, like long term or what have you? Because this is what, like the fourth or fifth installment that I remember reading over. So what, do you, what are your hopes short term and long term for the fair? Well, let me, yeah, let me, if you don't mind, back up sure. and just relate that this is not bringing it back I mean, it is, but it isn't. Sure. The, muse the Baltimore Museum of Art had a print fair starting in 1990. It was annual until 2000, and then it went to biennial every other year. Gotcha. And I had the uh, great fun of directing the last three iterations of it. The, f the last one that they ever did was in 2017, a couple months before I left. And um, the new director showed no interest or any inclination in, in doing it again. So I've, I've ever since I left been like, how am I going to get this to you know happen <laughs> in Baltimore? And so I very luckily uh, found and joined up with Brian Miller, who owns Full Circle Fine Art and Catalyst Contemporary and pulling together an art fair for Baltimore. And he, he'd been thinking about it for a long time. I don't know that he was thinking print fair, but he was thinking art fair of some sort. And, um, and so when we first met a couple years ago, I was like, you know, the thing I really want to do is bring the print fair back. And he was like, let's do it. <laughs> so, so he and uh, Julie Funderburg, his partner in the business, uh, and I have formed a new LLC to form this new print fair. So it, it feels a lot to me like the Baltimore Museum print fair, but no, people need to know that it is not associated yeah. with the museum in any way just for clarity's sake Absolutely. and it will um it will hopefully feel a lot like it because a lot of the same exhibitors are coming you know people that i got to know and love over the years and it's going to be 23 different exhibitors it'll be people who make the art it'll be secondary market dealers which means you know they've have stuff that has gone through the market already and are reselling it sure 
But most of them are print publishers and dealers who actually make the things, which is really wonderful. Because when you yeah. are standing in the booth talking to somebody, there's probably a 80% chance that that person helped the artist make it. That's great. So, and, there, and I have to tell you, when you come, find me and I'll walk you around and introduce you. Because print people are the nicest dang people. <laughs> and they love to talk shop. So they'll, you know, they'll tell you how the thing was made. They'll tell you what it was like to work with, you know, whichever artist it was. Like it's, uh, you know, it's like old home week. It's so much fun. That's wonderful. So is you like, do you plan on making this a like maybe adopting that biannually? Do you want it to be annually? What are your thoughts around that moving forward? Yeah, Brian wants to do it annually. I think we have to see how this first one goes and yeah. and make sure that we feel like it's sustainable every year or. Um, that's the plan right now is to sure. do it every year. Yeah, and it'll be, um, we found this really cool space to have it in. It's the Baltimore Innovation Center down in Pigtown, yeah. which is a gigantic brick warehouse. And we're up on the top floor, eighth floor of the building. It has 360 views of the city, and it is something like 45,000 square feet. It's huge. Wow. So, yeah, we're so we're installing gallery walls and lights and, you know, the whole nine yards. And it's um, it it's a uh, it's a cool, funky, gritty, you know, characterful place, which I think will become the part of the identity of the fair, which I think is really great. I, identity is big. And uh, yeah, I, I, that's, it sounds great. I mean, you described it, uh, you know, big, funky. Innovative. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Uh so let's talk about um like 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 education and, and that connection to creative work, right? Um how important has education been to your your career um or your your work as a creator? Like, you know, as I touched on before, you're you have a background in writing, you you're doing podcasting, which is more than putting on a microphone. So <laughs> uh so to speak speak to me about how um, important education has been and maybe something that it's kind of been this this driving piece that you something you've learned that you're like okay I can I can use this in what I'm doing and I'm still using it to this day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, education is important. I mean, formal and informal education, really. I mean, I went through school, got a you know a degree in art history, and went on for a master's. I didn't go for a PhD. Didn't think I had to and. I didn't really. Now I think you have to because it's so competitive. Um, and I learned things, but really I learned as I went through the career. Like it's all yeah. accumulated knowledge, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like my knowledge of the printmaking processes is something that I have acquired in the last, you know, 15 years or something because of some really wonderful friends in town who are printmakers and have brought me into their shops and said, hey, get your hands dirty. Let's do some printing. And um, so it's, yeah. So for me, it's, it's all experiential. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think part of that is being curious and open-minded about what, what it means to be an artist. I mean, as you asked me what art is, like it's all over the place. It ranges from, you know, making potholders with a crochet needle to, you know, painting and making prints and sculpture. So I don't know. I'm just, I just feel like I've always felt like art, which is necessarily packed with creativity. That's the driving force of creating art, right? Is one's own created great, excuse me, creativity and imagination that that is the very best part of us. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that it should be paid attention to and honored and uh, um, encouraged to grow. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you, you hear about it. And that's why I guess the education piece is the thing that I look at um, because it was always kind of like nudge to do stuff, but never really like, oh, how many art classes am I taking or how far am I really going down this path? I feel like obviously I feel like I've taken more math classes than art classes, but it was just something there. But definitely the experience component, like in doing the audio stuff, you know, I told you when we, we met in person how long I've been doing this and it's self-taught and, you know, it's kind Kind of one of those things like you self taught yourself how to use like yes yes or even looking in like my where i'm recording from is like my kind of creative office hub and i'm looking at my paintings and things of that nature where you know when i was a kid i did i did murals and worked on murals and with the school and all of that good stuff and i'm just like yeah i know nothing about brush strokes and things like that but i'm just doing it and having that tactile that experience thing and that's been, you know, it's a little hard initially for me to like get my hands dirty and get into it. But I think when you meet people um, and you're able just to get your hands in, once you get past that initial, at least for me, that initial barrier. Oh, I, know, I learned something new. You know, this desire to keep learning. Uh, I know how to fish a wall. I know how to do electric, electrical work now. And I know how to make a knife. So, you know, just different what? things. <laughs> yeah, I, I work with a knife maker at, you know, the um, the uh, Station North like Tool Library or what have you. And it, it was dope. You know, Henry High, shout out to him. And, you know, makers and crafts. And it's just, I think, having the desire and... Uh, some of the stuff that I've learned through podcasting, I guess that education piece has allowed me to couple that with that experience and be able to educate myself in those ways. Um, I think that traditional like in-class education is something that can open up doors for some of that uh, other more experimental education. That's my thought around it. Yeah, I mean, art education is tough, right? I mean, it's the first thing to go when they're cutting budgets. And, um, you know, I, I my father begged me not to become a studio art major, <laughs> which I thought about for a hot second, but really much better suited to art history. But even that, he was like, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, well, dad, actually, I'm going to become a curator. <laughs> right. It's like, you don't know what I'm doing, dad. <laughs> I'm not going to make much money at it, but I'm going to be really in love with my job. <laughs> and, and and that's like, you know, I try to believe in the, you try to balance the, what is the real life thing and what is the, the kind of mysticism kind of thing. And it's like, ah, you know, this costs things and so on. But it it will be fine. That's the way I start looking at it, or what have you. And I think being fortunate enough to be able to balance a day job that funds this creative practice and funds and keeps the internet on because everything is internet right now. Um, that's that's been very re- rewarding. That's enabled me to keep that that balance. That that really brings me joy. Having conversations like this and being able to connect with people like this brings me joy. And that all just you know something again that I've I've learned through doing this practice. Uh, you yep. want you it, during the print fair, you will see me flying around the ceiling in circles. Like that's my happy place. I I the three fairs that I directed at the museum were the best part of the job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of work. It's like managing 23 brides before their weddings. But I mean, no offense everyone. <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's just a lot of details, you know, a lot, lot to get done. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've organized a few different like events. Like it's, it's funny. It's like doing the event, managing the other people that I'm working with and being the talent as well for the event. I'm like, 
okay, I got to pencil this together, make sure this works. I was like, oh, snap, I haven't read any of my notes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'm a little terrible, unprepared. Um, so I got one last real question for you, and uh, then my rapid fire question. So this real question goes like this. Um, and, and I've run into it, but I want to I get your take on it as a, as a creative, as a person that's around creatives. Um, so I've heard about taking breaks, um, doing something creative, but not necessarily related you know, to your practice can be very helpful. You got to keep doing something creative. How do you under, overcome that uh, creative burnout or do you even experience that? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. When the um, pandemic and the shutdown really started in March of whatever year that was, <laughs> Time is elastic at this. It point. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I was still in the throes of I have to find another job after leaving the museum and and banging my head against a wall because you might imagine that there are not very many print curator jobs around. <laughs> so I was like, what well, you know? What am I going? I took real estate classes. Like I was doing all this other stuff. And find, when the pandemic shut everything down, I started writing, and I started writing blog. <clears throat> excuse me, blog posts. Re- going back and kind of reliving, re- excuse me, reliving the acquisition of certain things that I brought into the collection, works that, sure. that I love, and I started posting them on Facebook and got some really, you know, great response. And people were like, "Oh my God, I love it when you start writing." And I feel like I found my voice, hmm. where so many people, are, you know, just had a hard time with the pandemic. It was, it was like the, the fire that got lit under my butt. Like I was like, <laughs> I have to, I have to say, I have things to say and I'm going to say them because now's the time. And that led to doing the podcast, which I also produced myself and taught myself lots of <laughs> technical <laughs> stuff. Most of which I still don't understand. It's all magical. Um, yeah, I, I, um, there is, there is burnout cause it's a lot of work, but I'm still, excited about having found my voice and I still feel like I have things to say when I really get tired and burned out I get on my bike and I go riding Mm. it's good thank you um so now all of the goodwill if I've established it's time to just time to get rid of all of it it's time for some some rapid fire questions Uh so I got a couple of them for you um and don't overthink them you know you know one of them relates to one of the things that um, we met that that that, you know came up came up in my head uh so I'm going to start off with this one you've been in Baltimore long enough so you you should be able to answer this one in three words describe the real culture of Baltimore City from your vantage point from your vantage point um Baltimore Let's see. It's a dichotomy. Gritty <clears throat> gritty and wonderful. Can't get out of its own way. Fair. <laughs> Th- this one is going to be ridiculous. Okay. Onion rings or french fries? Oh, shoot. I never met a french fry I didn't like pretty much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I do occasionally love an onion ring. But I would default to french fry for sure. Okay. This this was a debate topic of the last weekend. We were going over the different cuts of French fries, and it, it got political. It got really political really quickly. It was just like, here's the thing about waffle fries. <laughs> what about tater tots? That was literally what the con- <laughs> the conversation turned into. I'm a crispy crown girl. There's more crunch per tot. Oh gosh, I think my my, my girlfriend was just like, uh, she's like, y'all need to start disrespecting crinkle cut. I was like, it's, it's BS. <laughs> Curly fries all day. Represent. I like a curly fry. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So this this has to connect with um, something that I noticed, uh, your phone case. So who or what are your three favorite fictional heroes? Oh, jeepers. Fictional heroes. Um, This is pop culture related, or it could be books, whatever you (laughs) want to throw out there. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, I have tough questions. Yeah. Um, well, my phone case, people should know, is of R2-D2, who is the through line and linchpin of every single story in the entire universe. Thank you, Dave Filoni. Um, <clears throat> oh, golly. I don't know. I, you know, by the time I'm reading for pleasure, I'm, I just, I need a happy ending. And so I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not going to quote, you know, war and peace to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I'm gonna stick with R two. <clears throat> okay. Sash, that's your that's your number one seed, right? That's who you're going with. Got it. I well, I find him charming and lovable, and courageous, and he gets it done. Okay, I'm here for it. Now, th- this one is the last one that I have, and this one was a little further up, but I thought I'd bring it down because I like to hold people to just don't overthink it, you know? Um, so creatively, what attracts you and what repels you? Where you're like, okay, that's cool, I guess. You know, like like what is not up there for you? Like, for instance, I, I'll, I'll say my, my stance on just to kind of help, and this is part of the padding process. Like... I love the art, the idea of podcasts, right? I love that people can use that to express themselves as another medium and so on. What I hate within that kind of area, what, I, what repels me in that area is it's like a lack of structure that people just turn the mic on and just kind of just just a few too many four-letter words, not really a, a solid theme. It's like, yeah, we kind of just talk about everything. And it's like, yeah, but not well, though. So, like, you're, you're not qualified. So that's that, that from that side, it's like creatively I'm brought in under the guise of, hey, podcasting, great. And then when I get more granular, oh, this is what your podcast is about? Not so great. I'm actually not going <laughs> to listen. <laughs> so yeah. for you, what creatively, what kind of, like, gets you like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm really curious about that work. I'm really interested about that work. And what's something that you're like, that's that's fine. Not really what I'm checking for, but it's fine. You're not going to like, you know, critique and hate anyone's art, but it's like, eh, I don't check for that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to bring it back to art. <clears throat> it, um, I have a harder time with pure abstraction and formalism, which are, you know, those paintings that are of uh, colored rectangles on colored rectangles. Mm-hmm. Which, to my mind, is pretty navel-gazing and the purview of white men. I'll say it. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've thought a lot about this, Rob. The things that I respond to more strongly have to do with messages Mm -hmm. and speaking truth to power and uh, calling people out on stuff and that is probably why i'm really happy in the print world because prints are made for that they are made for protest they're made to enable people to say i disagree and make 50 of them so there are more of them out in the world like they're the early version of the internet prints getting messages out and i really respond to i respond to that uh, sort of urge of artists to take up printmaking and say, what the heck? 
you know, what are you doing? So there's, uh, I will put a little plug, another plug back in for the Baltimore contemporary. No, sorry. Oh, strike that. Another plug in for the Baltimore fine art print fair. Ooh, that was a slip. The, um, we, uh, we managed to get a set of prints to come to Baltimore that we're presenting through Brian's gallery, Catalyst Contemporary. The artists' names are Zarawar Sidhu and Rob Swainston, and they're large-scale, multi-block color woodcuts, and they are about uh, George Floyd. They're about that fly on Mike Pence's head. They are about COVID. They are about BLM. They are about, you know, you name it. They're astonishing. Mm -hmm. They're huge, and they're sort of four and a half feet by three feet each, and... I haven't really seen, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody who's done something, but I haven't seen anybody or a pair of artists take on the crap that has happened between George Floyd's murder and January 6th, right. which right. is the time frame that they're working in. So there's 18 of these works and they, you know, tackle different pieces. And um, I can't... I, I, I would, when I went up to see the show, they just put them out for the first time in January in New York. And I went and I met them there and I was like, you guys, we have to get these to Baltimore because they're just exactly what prints are supposed to be. And I need you at my fair. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So everybody has to come see these amazing things. In fact, Rob and Zorawar are going to be talking with another curator, not me, because I have too much to do on Saturday afternoon. So you'll get to hear from them also, which is just always a treat. So I'm hoping that I can get into someone's ear and say, look, I need some, some edgy uh, fry prints out there. I need someone to really take a stance when it comes to the curly fry <laughs> movement that I believe in. But yeah, I, I, I like the way that you describe like that, that purpose of prints. And I think that's what's really evocative and what like let's say certain shirt, shirts, clothing, things like that, try to capture, you know, just have like a saying that's like right there, black and white. And it's like, look, I'm not, it's, it's no nuance here. This is what this is. And it can be artfully done, what have you, but this is the message, this message over, as, as you described earlier, maybe the navel gazing. So with that being said, um, I want to, again, um, thank you for being on this podcast. And two, I want to invite and encourage you to yet plug again. This will be the third plug. We, got, we can plug away. So plug one more time, um, dates, website, any of that stuff that you want to put out there. And yeah. Sure. <clears throat> well, first, my podcast is called Plate Mark. You can go to platemarkpodcast.com and find all of the episodes there. The Baltimore Fine Art Print Fair has a website, baltimoreprintfair.com. Tried to make it a little shorter. Baltimoreprintfair.com. You can get tickets for the VIP party on Thursday, April 28th there. And you can also get tickets for day passes for each of the days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, April 29, 30, and May 1st. And don't miss it. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. So there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Ann Schaefer for coming on to the podcast. And I'm going to say that I'm Rob Lee. And uh, there's art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. Mm -hmm.